Cooley to uh, come forward and speak to us uh, this morning. Uh, Bob has been a friend and partner of the Kern Family Foundation for quite some time as we've been working in theological education, and we are deeply in debt to him already. Two years ago, I had to introduce Dallas Willard, and I was uh, in quite a quandary because I thought, how on earth does one introduce Dallas Willard to a collection of uh, theological scholars? I feel uh, a similar dilemma this morning. Uh, as you already know, uh, Bob was the president of Gordon-Conwell for 16 years. He's a widely recognized scholar of archaeology, a former president of the Association of Theological Schools, a former senior editor at Christianity Today. And as I mentioned, we're already uh, very deeply in his debt at the Kern Family Foundation in our work in theological education. Bob, would you? Thank you, Greg. It's a delight to be with you and to share in this conversation about two important topics, culture change and institutional governance. Uh, Greg reminded me that uh, we must be finished by 9.30, and he put a big clock. You can't see it. <laughs> but right now, it says 8.33. He has already taken 15 minutes of my time. <laughs> But I will assure you, Greg, I will quit at 9.30. We're a grace-based community, though. Well, as a classroom teacher, when the bell goes off, <laughs> I stop. <laughs> because I never finish. And so at 9.30, you can be assured, we will be on our way. You forgot to tell them the whole career is in ruins. But out of that experience has come an appreciation for the dynamic of cultural change. And for the last 40 years, I have been working in that field with trustees and with presidents in particular. Uh, I've had few occasions with faculty, but I'm not sure they get the message. In fact, I remember uh, when I went into the presidency of Gordon Conwell, I had a gentleman come into my office the very first day to introduce himself. And he says, uh, what does an archaeologist know about a theological seminar to be president? Well, having worked at Missouri State University in a big context, I thought I could be glad. And I, I simply said, well, as an archaeologist, I'm used to working with crackpots. <laughs> <laughs> I learned real early on that that wasn't presidential. <laughs> and since you don't go to school to be president, uh, you learn in the crucible of experience. But I've come to appreciate theological faculty and their dedication and their, their discipline. So I look forward uh, to this moment. Change has been a constant con uh, 
subject in our discussions in higher education for the last decade or so. In fact, the gentle breezes that were blowing across the landscape that uh, Kevin referenced last evening, in my judgment, they have now turned into a hurricane. And if you watch the hurricane uh, uh, shots on television in the evening, with pieces of wood and trees and cars and everything flowing through the air. That's my picture of theological education today. And so, consequently, because of this change, this potential to modify in a drastic way, we have to pay attention to culture. Culture has the power to triumph mission. Say it again. Culture has the power to triumph men. Today we're going to talk about culture change in the macro environment this morning. And this afternoon we'll talk about culture change in the micro environment, the institutional culture. I'd like to go back. Uh, You keep going. Okay. We'll work on it. Okay, you'll work on it. Eh? Is that what you're looking for? That's what I was looking for. All right. You stay with me now. I'll be here. <laughs> you keep going and call out when you want another slide. Okay. Sir? Being an 85, I'm not a part of the techie generation, so I need to be able I'd like for you to think with me in the big picture. I don't have time to go deep because of the time limit Greg had me on. I feel like you're just a moment pressure. <laughs> 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 go back with me 400 years at least and talk in the big picture. We are dealing with work with time, but it's a 100 year period. We look at broad trends and movements in culture, and that's what I want you to think about. Not as detailed, data-driven economists or historians. I want you to see the big trend that happened, so that when the early settlers and the colonists came to North America, and they established their first settlements, we call those uh, farming villages, period of agricultural technology culturally. I'm going to focus on for a moment. That is the cultural foundation of our contemporary American society. In this period, of course, the primary social unit was the family. The family making up an extension. In other words, if we're going to work on the farms or in the land and develop agricultural products, we need large families. We need labor. It was a labor piece. And so families averaged anywhere from 8 to 11 children within the family. 
And so we have a, 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 a kinship-based system of relationships forming the primary farming village. The major economic activity, of course, was food production. They became so successful that they created surplus in some of the early sea commerce from the colonies involved the agricultural product. At the same time, we have what we might call cottage industry or colonial culture, where you have wool, wood, shipbuilding, uh, mining, fishing, other small industries that complemented the family farm and so on. It was a move westward at the same time in which we have the frontierism, the, the, the excitement uh, of moving west into new territory. And of course, we have the community of faith. This was the interesting thing, for at the center of these farming villages, you would have uh, the little church, the community church, and you'd have the family pew. I remember when I went to uh, Gordon Conwell, the board required me to attend Park Street Church. Some of you probably don't know that requirement of the board. But uh, Park Street Church was the fundamental church of the seminary. And as president, I was asked by the board to attend. And the first Sunday we went there, we sat in a, in a pew. And all of a sudden, somebody came and asked us to move. We were in the family pew. <laughs> I had not been aware of the fact that that was a hangover from the colonial period. And uh, the family had their pew, and the family pew was in the church. But th there you have the community of faith. And at the heart of that community of faith was a parson. The moral, the leader, the intellectual of the community, that person was probably trained uh, in a university in Europe or in one of the nine colonial colleges or may have gone through an apprenticeship, what we call meeting divinity and so on, in, within uh, the clergy uh, larger community. But there was a community of faith. What you had was an egalitarian uh, system of values, of action, of standardized behavior that served as the foundation. America, agricultural technology then establishes the basis for our village farming community. Everything built on relationship. Somewhere around 1780 to 1820, that 40-year period, you begin to get a shift away from agriculture towards the industrial period. Two things happen. We have the discovery of electricity that eventually leads to the electrical motor. We have the discovery of steam that leads to the steam engine. And the dynamics of change from agriculture to industry were underway. What were its consequences? <coughs> we began to move away from these primary farming villages into towns, into more urban settings. Cities like Chicago began to emerge and become larger than Boston and New York. But Philadelphia, along with these cities, began to identify for us an urbanized period. The other dynamic that shifted away from that egalitarian family spirit of the agrarian tongue moved into a socially stratified society 
where we move from middle, upper classes, lower classes, a class distinction begins to be determined around wealth, around position, around the economics. So it was an open society. I could go to church and sit in any pew. Manufacturing specialized labor. In the agrarian period, everyone knew everything on the farm, from gathering eggs to milking cows to planting seeds. They knew the whole routine. Now we see the beginning of the specialization of labor. A person now begins to be identified, not by their family membership, but rather by their function, by their job. So the mailman, the metallurgist, the office uh, worker, we begin to identify a person by their jobs. It's interesting, growing up uh, in the 20th century, I began to use the two questions. What church do you go to? And what do you do? No one asked me about my family. And so there was a shift from the agrarian identity into the industrial period with an emphasis upon function and labor. It became professional. The industrial society organized itself in hierarchical forms. This is where you begin to see the chief executive officer. In fact, it's in the middle of this period that the president of the Pacific School of Religion was first called CEO within the theological world. So that we have a hierarchy of authority, vertical authority. We begin to understand climbing the organizational ladder in terms of function. And so function now supersedes relationships. There's a dynamic change. Post-World War II. It's always a debate, when does the information age start? And I pinpoint 1991 to be exact, where you have uh, the breaking down uh, of the wall, the opening up of the communist east, and mobility, immigration, the whole movement of world society begins to move, along with the World Wide Web and the internet. And so I tend to pinpoint that. But all cultural change has an incipient stage to it, and it has a follow-up maturity stage. And it generally lasts about 40 years. So we are in the middle, at the moment, of another cultural change from industry to information. And this is what we call a paradigm change. This is not the normal change topic that we often talk about going from childhood, infancy, adolescence, mature adults, senior citizens, and the cemetery. That's a life cycle. We understand those changes, those are natural. Or planting a seed in the ground, and then having a blade, and then having a fruit in the blade. That's a natural uh, development or change built into the creative order. When we talk about cultural change, of this magnitude, we speak of it as a paradigm change, which means there are new cultural rules and new cultural practices. 
we have to stop and think about that. New cultural rules and new cultural practices. What you and I are experiencing today, with all of the debris blowing around us in theological education, it is a call for new practices with new rules. This is what I call the threshold of transformation in cultural change, the threshold of transformation. Historically, and by that I mean back to the 4,000 years ago with millennials, when you look at paradigm change over that broad landscape, there's always been a transformational threshold from one era of change or cultural expression to another lasting about one generation. And so I call it a opportunity for creative genius. That's the moment in which you find yourself now. The moment of creative genius. It's a moment of experimentation. It's a moment of innovation. It's a moment of moving away from old practices old rules into the realm of the next cultural phase. We're going through that in our American society. We're moving into a self-help environment. We go to the grocery store and we check ourselves out. We go to the gas station and we not feel like that. I go to my living room and check out my money from the bank. I'm in a self-help experience. And when you're 85, that's a real trial. <laughs> when I get into trouble, I call Ethan. He's my 16-year-old grandson. He comes over and solid. He thinks in a different way than I do. He has a different practice than I do. And so he teaches me, which I come. Which app, which system. So consequently, creative deviance is forcing us to make new designs. And when we look at the information age, look what has happened. We have moved to the egalitarian family-based farming village to stratify societies and urban centers into the global society filled with migrations, <coughs> movements of people. It's calling for new rules, new practices. <coughs> How are we going to treat the Islamization of the world? It's going to call for a new rule and a new practice. How are we going to educate clergy in faith and work? if there are no seminaries, and we have no professors. I don't want to scare you, but 10 years from now, the professor that we have known will be an archive. Creative deviance is the moment that we begin to understand globalization and its impact on our vocation, our calling, and the mission for the kingdom. Keep 
need are big pictures, big strokes. We've moved from just producing food to manufacturing materials. Now into managing knowledge. We're into the knowledge asset management phase of culture. For us, the issue is no longer teaching. It is now learning. <coughs> we are moving from teaching to a student-centered educational experience. And we're learning how to manage that, how to create that. I wish I could talk longer on that. That's a big one. But we have created networks. Networks. Commerce is way ahead of us on this. Some of you do a lot of travel, as I do, and you belong to the Star Alliance or to the One World Network. And that provides you with all kinds of varieties of amenities because of the network. <coughs> have we enough <coughs> in our theological schools that we have a network? Can I transfer to your seminary without losing all my past experience? The industrial age says no. <laughs> you must experience a little bit of Gordon Conway. Therefore, you must take 90 hours here, regardless of the 60 you had at Trinity. What's going to happen in that process? <clears throat> well, networking, collaboration. Who do we collaborate with? In the church, community organization. What kind of network do we establish? When it comes to the authority line, we have moved then from that community, that town hall, where the community gathered to make its decisions into the vertical organizational hierarchy. The industrial period being the, the, the day where denominations were structured. If you look at the history of our earlier denominations, they're all vertically organized. Polity is vertical. Now, with the information age, we have flattened everything out. We've moved into this empowerment phase of the horizontal organization. Self-help. Before long, institutional administrators will be artifacts. Sorry, Tim. We no longer will need deans. Registrars. <laughs> financial officers. All of that function will be done through self-help, through the computer. Everything's going to be flat. And the nature of authority will be shifted. <coughs> Consequently, we have moved from function to system. <coughs> Systems design, systems thinking. And culture is a system. And when you move one attribute of that system, you impact the other subsections, the other subcultures, the other dynamics within the culture system.
And this has been the deficiency of theological curriculum for 200 years. When you study our seminary curricula, you find that 25% of culture has been omitted from the curricular process. We have not improved an understanding of economics, technology, work, and wealth. Curricula have centered on the ideological, the worldview, the theology. They have centered on social organization and the nature of groups and roles in society. And they have centered on text, language, grammar, semantics, and communication. But you will find very little effort in the wider realm and cultural understanding of the economic. Quickly, let me throw some history of the seminary against this landscape. As I mentioned, theologians and clergy were trained in Europe colonial colleges or through mentoring and apprenticeships in the agrarian period. Our first seminary, Andover, in 1808, at the beginning of the Industrial Age, although my friends uh, in the Roman Catholic identified St. Mary's in 1790 as being the first seminary in America. Or if I go to Pittsburgh, they insist that Pittsburgh Theological Seminary was the first seminary. But I think for formal purposes, we give that credit to Handel in New England. So at the beginning of the Industrial Age, we began to formalize theological education. In the business and professional world, at that time, German technology was beginning to manifest itself. The first PhD at Johns Hopkins in terms of engineering and German technology. And German technology brought along with it German theology. And the next thing you know, we have German theology being taught, discussed, in our few seminaries across America at the end of the 19th century. And this is the period that Greg was referring to a little bit earlier this morning. It's in this period in which the evangelical and the believing <coughs> began to look at new ways to develop theological education, out of which came the reading divinity. You would have Russell Conwell in Philadelphia having uh, seven to 10 students every week drop in for the reading of divinity. And the next thing you know, he called that temple school. And then in 62, 1962, it became Temple University. But it had its roots in reading divinity. Or you have the four Bible institutes being established. You have the Boston Missionary Training Institute that became Gordon College, Gordon Conway. Or you have Toronto Institute, or you have uh, the institute that uh, is now Nottingham, or Moody, or Biola. 
That was the period of these great Bible institutes, and they were responses to cultural change. Driven by a liberalizing theology, a more practical need for clerical education. In this whole period in higher education, we no longer have uh, just uh, a, a very simplified leadership. Instead, in the industrial period under the organized hierarchy, we began to develop straight. So that in 1870, we have the first dean at Cornell University. Between 1870 and 1902, we have the admissions office, the registrar, the library. All of these specialized labor groups begin to manifest themselves in the life of higher education. And likewise in our seminaries. They begin to duplicate what is going on in the change mechanism. At the same time, boards were being modified. The first boards going back earlier, had a large representation of belief. But by the Civil War and post-Civil War, business and professionalism had taken over, and then now began to replace the clergy on boards of government. And you begin to get a business perspective, a professional perspective. The value of the church begins to be diminished within the life of government. So there are some huge changes going on behind the scenes that one can delve into to see that they're foundational to what we're dealing with today. As we come along into the more information period, we see those same changes going on today. Many boards are moving towards electronic board meetings. And that begins to shift the personal dimension in the decision-making phenomenon. Or you begin to see uh, the lessening of board meetings, moving from four to three to two a year, because they are in constant communication. And so information is changing the sense of board community in having the governance of the institute. And you know the changes have been going on for the delivery of content in the area of education itself. We're beginning to see that movement. So when you start to see the impact of the macro environment upon the educational process within theology, you begin to see how these changes are coming. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the changes we should be anticipating? We know it's going to happen. So I'm not here just hypothesizing with you in the future what's going to be. I'm here to tell you these things are going to happen. So that when we look at the church, it is going to become globalized. What does that mean for an understanding of work? We have understood in the church work from an Anglo-European perspective. What happens now when we get Hispanics? <clears throat> or we get Arabs? They have a different view of work. They have a different understanding of work. How are we?
we're going to prepare people for a globalized understanding of what diversity is. So it begins to raise some questions. About the nature of preparing the clergy for the theological reading. What about the teaching and learning process? Most of us have been trained in the lecture method. We went to the class. Hopefully we fulfilled the assignment. We were prepared to receive the next lecture. We wrote like man. And the professor read like man from his yellow notes <coughs> that hadn't been changed for 25 years. <laughs> And we were given credit for that. That was called learning. The curriculum had been established by the faculty. The schedule of classes was determined by the availability of faculty. Learners were incidental to the process. But what's happening? The student sits in class now and can Google every term you use your discussion. And they can debate you. Because they have a source of content information that will be wider and broader than your own experience. Now we understand backwards. Students get their content technologically and they come to a different <coughs> setting to do their homework under the eyes of a mentor, a tutor, an older student. So we have no need for the no need for the professor. The trend towards adjunct faculty is so phenomenal, it ought to work somewhere. The tenured professorship is dying. Schools are networking with organizations. And one of the most popular networks going on right now is on the global level. Schools networking with international centers around the world. I listened to our dean in Charlotte, Tim, and he talks about bringing in professors from Africa and Europe, via technology into the classroom. And I shake my head. That's not my world, but that's the new world that's coming. So the networking between our institutions is becoming extensive and resource possible. Horizontal organizations. As I mentioned in the pyramid, in the vertical of an institution of authority. Middle management is collapsing. This has already happened in the commercial world. 
It is now beginning to happen in the world of academia, in educational institutions. The business plan of institutions are diminishing the amount of funds available for administrative functions. They are being replaced through other systems. And we're going back to that which was in the agrarian period, the board and president and tutors. We're beginning to see that kind of a model begin to emerge. There's one big trend on here that I haven't even highlighted. And that's that movement towards secularization, the loss of religious liberty, and the questioning nature of the biblical truth that you can chart all across these changes. That should excite us with opportunity. We should not lose hope. I picked up the Christian century and almost collapsed when I read the first article. Nine churches in America are closing their doors every day. Stop and think about it. Nine churches in America. Then I picked up the Wall Street Journal this week to read the, the article on the church in Europe. Two-thirds of the Roman Catholic churches in Europe have been closed. Stop and think about that. As the church thrives as a community, so the seminary. As the church closes, the seminary closes. I've been taught that you can't kill the seminary. But I'm here to suggest that culture can kill a seminary. And we should begin to anticipate the closure of seminaries in the next 10 years. Well, that's just enough of a broad stroke to talk about culture change, what's going on. We are living in a transnational period. We have the opportunity for creative deviance to make it a full life. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Is there room for experimentation? <coughs> And has religion moved to the private and the personal? Do we no longer have an importance to the community, to society? Seminaries once trained public intellectuals. Are we going to abandon that now in the light of the trend? What thoughts do you have? What questions do you have? Can you speak into this that will help us to better understand these dynamics? Yeah. Well, I think um, globalization and uh, the, the mixing up of the ethnic population in this country you touched on it in a couple of different ways. Um, sometimes the statistics about dying churches uh, in Europe and America are in a 
suggesting that the churches that are worth counting and the populations worth counting are the Euro uh, ethnic groups. And yet there's just this burgeoning of um, church growth among populations that are non-European descent. So you talked about how there are different views of work. What else do you think is coming that is likely to be positive? Because when you talk about privatization, secularization, we're talking about attitudes that are, and even post-modernity is often defined as categories that are largely relevant for Euro descent. What about people for whom the sacred and the secular is merged? So how, how do we, uh, as largely Euro European descent uh, organizations and heritages, how do we engage this, which uh, maybe in some cases is a has been like a survival thing. How do we make sure that we engage more students? And it looks like the Hispanic population is growing, or it looks like it's growing, but at a meta level, how do we really benefit from trends that maybe, in a more appreciative frame, help us to regenerate? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, let me see if our colleagues can speak into that. Uh, I don't want this to be a one-way thing. I'll be glad to speak into it. But let me see if there's a response to how are we going to globalize the church through a train cruise? How are we going to develop a theology that will work in that kind of cultural mosaic? Or are we going to insist upon the Korean church, the African American church, or the Ethiopian church? Are we going to separate? Or are we going to get back to the community discipleship, bringing together one? One is certainly not a comprehensive answer, but one step is just exposure. Exposing our students to things other than they've been exposed to. The college where I teach, undergrads are required to take an international mission trip before they graduate. Um, and now we've incorporated a domestic international mission practicum where they go to an international people group that's in Dallas, Fort Worth, or overseas in some way, either or go to the African <coughs> I mean, go somewhere where they're, they're interacting with people from other places, other backgrounds that they just haven't been a part of. And I think that's a, a really good first step for an 18 to 25 year old. Okay, so you're suggesting an international experience should be a regular part of the learning process. In some way, shape, or form, I think so. We can no longer look upon it as a lecture program. As what? An electric program. Exactly. When I was teaching in the university, we tried to get international programs, but the fact they kept voting them down because they were seen as <coughs> extracurricular as lecture. They were torturers. Now we have to shift up in that I did not practice to a new rule, but it is a requirement. It's a part of globalizing the learning experience. Good idea. Another one? Yeah. Your your word, your final word there, just before team systems, is the flip side of self-help is empowerment. Yeah. And I think that a theology and praxis that understands that when the spirit is active, there's a new sociology created. And I think we're going to have to recover uh, theology from Luke and Acts a little bit, but I think we're going to have to begin to think about the praxis implications 
of a, of a welcoming table and, and spiritual dynamics that I think positively create a new community. We will always have frontier and, and ethnocentric <coughs> mission stations, but increasingly the, the, the aspiring communities want to be in touch with each other, especially their children. So I think we have a great opportunity, and I'm not being parochial here denominationally, our belief in the vitality of the spirit should give us cause for optimism. So, Charlie, you're calling us back to the Pauline concept, where there's neither Greek nor barbaric, nor male nor female, nor slave and so on. In other words, we're redefining community. Yes. <coughs> yes.
historic Martin communities in Mars in New York City. The world is truly out of the So we got three out of Let's go to the fourth one. In uh, this past semester, our historical theologian at Moody Spokane developed a class called Global Theology. And he loves technology, and he was able to solicit funds to get 50 scholars to come in real time to the class from all over the world. Uh, five continents were represented, and the students were able to interact in real time, big screen, with these scholars from all over the world. And so the technology flattening that you mentioned, they were able to have direct, of all denominational stripes actually, and able to have a global theology conversation. What was interesting is that one of the themes that came out is several of the developing world theologians were articulating <coughs> that theological education is just a century behind. The, the flourishing, the, the entrepreneurship, the growth of the church is true, but they, they sense a, a lack of rigor. And so they're about a century behind in the actual theologies, the systematics, the historical. And so they, they love the growth of the global church, but they desire the education that the West has. Mm -hmm. And so that they're, they're um, anyways, it was fascinating to see technology bring together scholars from all over the world in our context, but that they were just seeing that there's a deficiency that they felt in their own articulation of some of the theological categories that they have. So globalized learning then is going to accelerate the rate of learning in this process. Good. Okay, we got four. Yes. I, I, I'm, I'm worried that we've got a deeper problem that has been also mentioned here, that we're still talking about educating education processes, whereas um, what we need is a total new ecclesiology, teaching for a new ecclesiology. Um, Tom, Tom Nelson's uh, contributions last year at this, at this retreat uh, kind of illustrate this sort of thing, that we, we, we're training people to suck them into church um, so that they can see our brilliance and our ministry and we're asked as members to join the church to show the church what our ministry can contribute to the church whereas it's a whole centrifuge sucking everybody into the professionals and in the process um, they're outsourcing their spirituality to the pastors, and we're trained to that model. We're training people that can, can do these cool things. Um, whereas, I mean, the essence here is a, is a centrifugal push them out, equipping the believers, and um, if, if you don't know what your people are doing 95% of their time, you're, uh, you can't equip them for that, and we're not training them. So it's a, to me it's a, it's a total new ecclesiology understanding. Okay, we have uh, this idea, a new ecclesiology uh, in the following perspective, for the purpose of glorifying God, rather than man. Equipping the saints. Okay. okay. Yes, sir. I find it interesting that one thing that hasn't come up huge in all this, it seems to me, is the role of media in cultural formation. And, uh, and this is going to piggyback on the point just made. And that is, we we are training people to come to us to hear what we have to say about life. When in fact the scripture calls in terms of mission for us to go into the world and 
so my, I think we have not thought enough about the way in which we distribute what it is that we have because our model is you come to us rather than us being engaged with where people live life. And in that context, it seems to me, this is part of the new ecclesiology that I think you're, you're raising. Um, we need an ecclesiology that is life engaging as opposed to an ecclesiology that, that is, that is uh, local, localized, local centered. Okay, we got five ideas going in. They're coming pretty fast now. Yes. Specialized labor and manufacturing to knowledge asset management. I like that you put that because that's really the revolution for professors. That most of us were trained under this specialized labor. We became specialists in a discipline. And the idea is that people would come to us for specialized knowledge. But now what's happening is that professors are no longer being seen as specialists in their knowledge field, but rather are asked to be more like curators, conduits, even librarians. I feel like a librarian most days. I'm asking students to do things differently, to network differently, to, to acquire information differently. I was not trained as a librarian. I was not trained as a curator, but I find myself filling that position more. So just, just to, uh, to affirm what you have to Yeah, but Dan Hamilshire of ATS believes this is the greatest formation that's going to go on with the professor. We're going to move from being a specialist into a generalist.
where the church functions within this uh, fighting against the secularization and the sacred secular dichotomy, and that uh, that dichotomy has really broken down for millennials. So the church is trying to fight against this uh, this dichotomy that millennials uh, innately know isn't real, and millennials uh, intuitively recognize the interconnectedness of everything and the spiritual dimension of everything better than the church does. So I, I wonder how much of that disconnect alienates millennials from the church. Millennials know that God is everywhere. God is influencing everything. They don't need to go to a church that's trying to convince them of something that they already know. They need a church that is helping them to recognize uh, or uh, clarify what exactly it means that everything is interconnected. We're speaking to the uh, age generational issue. I guess I think I, so much of this is very helpful and, and sensible and using technology is right in cross-cultural experiences and so forth, but I do think that there's a lot to be said for the Christian tradition of being counter-cultural. And, and, you know, I, I guess I'm sort of dismayed that the accreditors are just saying, yeah, you can put the whole MDiv online and, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is great. If you string together some TED Talks and a little Google here and there, you got the deal. And it strikes me that you know, the, the group that goes back and says, uh, no, we're going to kind of do the Gamaliel Jesus thing where you have uh, a, a really helpful guy who actually knows more than these other people. We're not going to give everybody a trophy, uh, you know, like in T-ball. Um, and they're going to be able to hear each other and play off of each other. And they sit in a seminar room, and he's not doing just old seminar notes, but he's doing Socratic stuff. And I, I think that one of the most bold kind of Kind of entrepreneurial work is, is to be countercultural in these days. And, and by the way, my, my cross cultural experience all over the world in mission trips is, is not to, to become more relativistic, but I mean, I've hiked up the Nile from Luxor to Aswan over days and stayed in $2 hotels. And I, I never loved American Western culture more than, than that. I mean, it's not like, yes, now I can appreciate the Nile Valley and the Muslim culture. Uh, so, again, I think the counterculture word, it's sort of like in Hollywood, someone's really bold. They made a movie about incest or something. That's not bold in Hollywood. Make a movie about, uh, you know, faithful Christian monogamy. Now, that's scary. So, I think there's, I think there's a future for being counterculture. Okay, we've had nine different attributes of response to culture change. It's 930, Greg. Thank you very much. So much. And uh, Bob's going to be talking to us again. Uh